Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. Illustration, but we are going to look at a real life, if you will, family feud, and all of us can relate to and learn from and understand. But as we look at the story of Joseph together. I do want to just kind of begin reading in Genesis chapter 37. Now remember, um, between chapter 37 and 50, which is our text for this evening, it will not be on the screen. So you need to have a Bible in front of you. We're going to flip back and forth, but it will all be within those chapters. And so it shouldn't be that hard to follow along. But beginning in Genesis chapter 37, if you're with me tonight there, we just simply say amen. Beginning in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with, his, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's um, wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the, uh, the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. What we're going to do tonight, two parts to tonight's sermon. First is we're just going to walk through the story together. For those who have not heard the story of Joseph, or at least haven't heard it in a while, um, the goal of the first part is for us to just see a quick summary of the story. And then the second part, we're going to ask three important questions about suffering as we see it relate in Joseph's life. But if you have a fill-in-the-blank and you have an outline, this is the fill-in-the-blanks are for part one. First, we see Joseph as the favored brother. If you follow the story of Jacob, Jacob um, went to uh, find, well, one, he fled from his brother Esau. We read that in the chapters prior to this. He fled from his brother Esau. He went to family in a distant town where he found uh, a wife that he wanted. He worked for this wife for seven years, then was deceived to marry her older sister first, then to marry her, and then there became this family feud amongst the wives about who had the, the most sons for uh, Jacob, and it became this whole thing. Then there were other wives brought in, and so Jacob has all of these sons, but specifically Joseph is Rachel, his beloved wife's son. And so because of that, Joseph was the favored son or the favored brother. Now, um, faithfully or uh, obviously so, the other brothers were not happy about this. And because of the favoritism that was shown upon him, the other brothers who were older, for the most part, became jealous And we see, beginning in verse 25, that Joseph went from the favored brother to the forsaken brother. The brothers, Joseph was coming to um, visit them, and the brothers, because they hated him, decided, you know what, we need to get rid of him. And I want us to see a theme that is happening as we look at Genesis. We're going to continually see a theme of brokenness, even amongst families, due to sin. We saw it with Cain and Abel, and we're seeing it here again with Joseph and his brothers. But the favored brother became the forsaken brother. Look with me in chapter 37, verse 25. When they, that's the other brothers, sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan. So Paul's, uh, what we skipped was they threw him in a hole. They're like, they, they were, they honestly weren't sure whether they're going to kill him or not. So they just threw him in a hole and they said, let's go ahead and eat our sandwiches while we talk about this and discuss this. Let's have a family meeting about what to do. And so while he's in the hole, undecided, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by. Then they pulled or drew Joseph up out and lifted him up out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt." So they just said, look, we, we're gonna, if we kill him, we gain nothing from it. So let's go ahead and sell him. Let's forsake him. He's no longer our brother. We will sell him into slavery. That way we can at least profit from the fact that he's gone. That's, uh, that's nice in and of itself, but then let's benefit from it in financial means. 
And so if we follow the story of Joseph, Joseph ends up as a slave. And we pick up the story in chapter 39. He ends up as a slave. And beginning in verse 4 of chapter 39, it reads this. Joseph found favor in his sight, that is his master. He found favor in his master's sight and attended him. And he made him the overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he, uh, all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So we're beginning to see a theme already. He went from the favored brother to now the favored slave. I guess if, if you're Joseph and you're imagining just this idea that you've been betrayed by your family, you're now sold into slavery, I guess it's not all that bad of a place to end up as, as a young man to be at least in this slavery to then have blessings laid upon you because he is then the favored slave. But because he's the favored slave, the master's wife has an eye for him. And what happens is the master's wife comes and she tries to get Joseph to sleep with her. And let's pick it up in chapter 39, verse 11. But one day he went into the house to do his work. And none of the men of the house were were there in the house. She, the master's wife, caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and that he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has, uh, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out, cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her, or excuse me, then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me and laughed at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of my house. So what happened? Verse 19. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. He went from favored slave to the framed slave. It's a picture. Joseph did nothing wrong, but he went from being favored to being lied against. That he, because the wife thought that she could have what she wanted, and we see Joseph was pressured to compromise. And because he did not compromise under this, she framed him and lied. She took the garment that he left behind when he was trying to be faithful and fled away. And she took it and framed him in order to have him thrown into prison. And I want to pause here in the story for a second because I have found, and as I've just pastored and ministered amongst you in living in New York, one of the realities that I have come to recognize that we can learn from this story is that you and I are pressured to compromise every single day. In a similar way that Joseph here was pressured to compromise. Listen to me. Joseph is a young man. Joseph has been forsaken by his brothers. He has been sold into slavery, but God continues to bless him where he ends up as a master or, or, or second to his master as a manager of the entire house. I might be saying something like this if I were Joseph. Well, I, I lived with my family, and they worshipped Yahweh. They worshipped the God, the one God who created all things. But look good, what good that got me. I, the family who's supposed to honor and serve Christ, they sold me into slavery, and so might as well make the best of it. But why do I have to be faithful to that God who allowed me to get in this situation might as well compromise my faithfulness to that God because it seems as though he compromised his faithfulness to me. See, that might be something I would be thinking. But Joseph in this moment chooses not to compromise. And the question for you and I is how are we today pressured to compromise? And the question is how do we stay faithful? Our culture pressures us to compromise sexual purity. 
We live in a culture that it challenges sexuality and challenges our purity. And even for us, and one of the things that has um, a question I have received a lot, especially from those who are single in the room, who are pursuing marriage, is recognizing that I want to find a spouse who loves Jesus and is faithful to Jesus as I am. And I recognize when I look around in the culture around me, there might not be all that many who do that. And so I'm pressured to compromise. Well, well, maybe I don't necessarily have to have a godly spouse. Maybe I can just have a spouse who at least believes in God. That's good enough, right? Or maybe, to do, is it really even that important for me to have a spouse that where the both of us worship God? Can it just be one that is okay with me worshiping God, whether he or she worships God? And the point is, is that I recognize that that is a difficult thing because there's this battle within us to be faithful to what God calls us to in faithfulness to him in our relationships and sexual purity and then the culture around us. We're pressured to compromise our integrity for professional gain. This is a competitive culture for the workplace. And you, for the sake of keeping a job or being promoted in a job, you may be pressured to compromise your integrity. I would imagine Joseph in this moment, his integrity and his sexual purity are challenged and compromised for the sake of him. Imagine in this moment, ah, I'm a slave, right? Um, I could continue to be in a really good favored position if I compromise or I might. Well, he might not know what his consequence would be, but we find out he is thrown into prison because he chose not to compromise. See, the struggle you and I often face when we compromise is, is the reality is, is our lack of compromise actually might bring us suffering. The lack of compromise actually might prolong our singleness. The lack of compromise may prolong um, uh, or may cost us to lose a job or position or favor in some places. We're pressured to compromise our families for financial gain. We're pressured to compromise our beliefs for, for cultural popularity. And what we're going to see in the story of Joseph is... We might see in our own selfishness that if I'm faithful to God, all things will go well for me. But actually what we see in the story of Joseph, if you're faithful to God in a culture that is not faithful to God, your faithfulness may actually cause suffering in your life. Are are you and I prepared for this? And I hope by the end of tonight, we're going to see the sovereignty of God as he works in that and where we can emphatically go, yes, I will be faithful. It is worth it no matter the consequences. So we see Joseph at the end of chapter 19, he is thrown into prison. So let's pick it up in 39, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 39, verse 19, we see he's thrown into prison. Let's pick it up in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge and all the prisoners who were in the prison. Now he goes to favored prisoner. He goes from favored brother to favored uh, slave to now favored prisoner. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. But the problem is, is we see Joseph encounter two other people in prison. They have a dream and Joseph, God uses Joseph to prophetically tell them what the dream happens And Joseph tells them, hey, when this goes good for you, specifically to the cupbearer, when this goes good for you and you're back in the presence of Pharaoh, will you tell him about me so he can get me out of prison? Guess what happens in verse 20? On the third day of chapter 40, verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants, meaning he, he pulled them out of prison. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, which is what Joseph said would happen, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted him. Then listen to verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He went from favored prisoner to the forgotten prisoner. Do you see the theme that is happening in Joseph's life? He is favored, and then he is forsaken. He is favored... And then he is framed for something he didn't do. He is favored, and then he is forgotten. I don't know about you, but I'm reading the story, and a question pops in my mind. He is favored, we see, because God blesses him in everything he does, and that always turns out into eventual suffering. I'm starting to ask the question, is the favor of God also good? 
See, when I'm reading this story, I'm going, hey, Joseph might be going, hey, God, if you could just take your favor off with me, I'm good with being average for a minute. Because your favor turns out to blessing, but that blessing always turns into more suffering and pain. At least from our perspective, it seems that it is so. But we see the incredible story of Joseph. When we turn to chapter 41, we see him become the favored ruler. Chapter 41, beginning in verse 37, it reads this. This proposal, uh, Paul's, so what happened is Pharaoh has a dream. If you don't know the story, Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can interpret the dream. And the cupbearer, two years later, goes, oh, yeah, I met this guy once in prison who interpreted my dream. Maybe he can interpret your dream, Pharaoh, also. So at the right moment, he is remembered. He goes, Joseph comes, and he tells him the dream. And basically, there were two dreams that meant the same thing. And Joseph tells him what the dreams simply mean is this is that you're about to have seven years of prosperity in the land of Egypt. That means you're going to have tons of food, and it's all going to go well for you. But right after those seven years, there's going to be seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine are going to be greater, ultimately have a greater impact on you than the prosperity to the point that it is going to have you forget the prosperity, and all the land will suffer greatly because of it. So here's what you should do. You should, during the seven years of prosperity, you should save and prepare some of that food so when the famine comes, you'll have something to eat, right? And so this is where the story picks up in verse 37 of chapter 41. This proposal, that was the proposal that Joseph gave Pharaoh, pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And so here's the picture. Pharaoh goes, look, I'm still Pharaoh. But besides that, you're over everything else in the land. And he becomes the favored ruler. But here's, as we finish the story, is how it all comes together. And there's this beautiful picture. Because guess what happens? The famine is happening two years into the famine. So nine years later, after he is pulled out of prison, nine years later, famine comes. And his brothers face and his family that has sold him into slavery encounters the famine. And they hear that there's food in Egypt. And so they go to Egypt. They show up and imagine this moment for Joseph. I, I, I honestly don't think prior to this moment, maybe, maybe not, but I honestly don't think prior to this moment, Joseph had this realization. All this suffering was so that one day I could see my family. So all of a sudden, imagine he's just going about business. It has been 20 years since he was sold into slavery, 20 years. He was 17 years old and he's probably 39 at this moment. So it's over 20 years. When this moment where all of a sudden his brothers show up. Imagine that feeling. Family feud, 22 years later, your brothers show up. And you realize and you remember a dream that God gave you back when you were 17 years old about a dream that one day you would rule over your brothers. That's actually why they hated you and sold you into slavery because you were arrogant and you were telling them, although you were the youngest, that you were going to be their ruler. And they hated you for it. And they sold you into slavery. And 22 years later, you have this moment. I told you so, right? I told you so. But, but for Joseph, I, I think it was more than just I told you so. Because I think Joseph had this anger. We see that he, he talks harshly to his brothers. And he throws them in prison. And for three days, they're in prison. And I imagine three days with the fighting of emotions that went through Joseph's heart. And I imagine as in those three days that God finally opens his eyes to the truth of chapter 45. And so turn with me to chapter 45. Joseph finally shows compassion on his brothers. He lets his brothers out of prison, all except for one. He tells them to go back and bring the youngest brother, his only full-blood brother, Benjamin, says, you must bring him back with you in order to get the brother, the brother that's in prison out. And so they go back, but Jacob, his father, is, doesn't want to lose his other son from Rachel. And so he goes, nope, can't, he can't take Benjamin, can't take Benjamin, to the point that they're all about to die from starvation. 
Then finally they come back. Joseph tests them. And we see this picture that finally Joseph reveals himself. And I'm telling you, every year in the one you're reading as I come to this, I always read ahead a day or two because I just get sucked into the story and I can't stop reading because I want to get to this moment in chapter 45, verse 4. Joseph just got done revealing himself to him and he says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth to keep you alive for many survivors. Joseph becomes the favored ruler. And lastly, he is finally the forgiving ruler. He's the forgiving ruler. And he forgives his brother and he reunites with his brother. And I don't have time, but I want you to pay attention. If you go back and read the story, you'll see a prominent position that Judah plays in the story. And one of the reasons that Judah plays such a prominent position, because it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. So the fact that when it says Judah and his brothers go to Egypt, and when Judah comes back with Benjamin, Judah is always the one that is talking to his brother. Why? Because it's a picture of 22 years later that the one who put him into slavery, we see a picture of reconciliation and forgiveness of Joseph to Judah and to the rest of the brothers. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation and forgiveness. But we see Joseph have to go through this journey. Okay, so... Part two of the sermon, as we looked at this, there's three questions we want to ask. First, where is God in Joseph's suffering? Right? Why is Joseph suffering? And what is the purpose of Joseph's suffering? Where is God? Why is he suffering? And what is the purpose of his suffering? So first question, where is God in Joseph's suffering? I want you to turn to chapter 39. Where is God in Joseph's suffering? It actually gives a perfect answer. Genesis 39.2 said, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. He goes on in verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. At the end of chapter 39, verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph, And he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. It's a couple of verses later in verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Where was God in the middle of Joseph's suffering? He was right there with him. Oswald Chambers said it this way. Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified. The penitent or repentant thief is crucified. And the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we can know the widespread heritage of suffering. Here's the point. He says the sinner who rebelled is crucified. The sinner who asked for forgiveness was crucified. And the one who didn't deserve it, the Son of God, is crucified right in the middle The point is simply this, is that it is not only through suffering that all of us we see as a part of our life because of sin, but we see that God meets us right in the middle of suffering. Where was God in the middle of Joseph's suffering? Right in the middle. He was right there with Joseph, which has us ask the question, God, where are you in my suffering? Not only personally, but as as a pastor, these are the questions that get asked to me the most about suffering. Where is God when this is happening to me? It it is, you have no idea for me. When we talk about the story of Scripture that we saw that there are four plot twists or four kind of acts in all of Scripture. It is that God created everything. That we see that the fall happened, a rebellion. We see redemption. And then we see this promise that God's going to restore and recreate all things. But it's in that recreation that there is a promise that he is going to wipe away every tear. That there is going to be no more hurt. There's going to be no more sorrow. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more pain. And you have no idea the privilege I have to be a pastor and sit on the front seat of seeing God heal and suffering. But also the, the sadness I have that I get to sit at the front seat of other people's suffering. 
And here's what I know, is I long for the day for Christ to make all things new. And there is no more suffering because you, specifically you in this room, and you meaning us in creation, have faced way too much suffering. And I often hear this question, where was God in the middle of this? And I want us to see from the story of Joseph is that he is right there in the middle. Deuteronomy 31 says that as his covenant people, that he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. Joseph was forsaken, but God promises never to forsake us. Why? Because Christ was forsaken so that we never have to. The existence of suffering does not mean the absence of God. But in fact, it normally and usually means the presence of God. That is not to say that God is the cause of suffering. Mankind's rebellion owns that blame. But it is to say that God draws near and bears our suffering with us as our Redeemer and our Comforter. Let us never forget that Christ suffered right in the middle with those other two that were crucified. Second question, why is Joseph's suffering taking place? Now, this is a difficult question that the text actually gives a very clear answer but it might be difficult for us because it is two truths that sound contradictory, but it's actually they, they lie and run together, to get, uh, run together. So I want you to illustrate it this way. When we give the two answers to this question, why is Joseph's suffering taking place? You've got to think of the two answers like the two sides of a railroad track. They run parallel together and alongside together in perfect unity together. But Genesis chapter 45, verse 4, answers this question. Why is Joseph's suffering taking place? Verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. The first answer to why is Joseph's suffering taking place is because of human responsibility you got to see that Joseph says it clearly here that I am where I am. I am your brother. 22 years later, I am he whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph was forsaken by his brothers. He was framed by the wife and he was forgotten by the cupbearer. He is in the positions that he is because of human responsibility that we see that human actions were taken upon him and that he is suffering the way he is because of human responsibility. Now, there's oftentimes we suffer because of our own responsibility, that we all know the reality of our own sin and actions and the consequences. But really the question of suffering comes to do with when you aren't responsible but for your own suffering, but someone else is. So the question comes, why am I suffering? And the answer begins with because of humans actions and because of human relationships because of sin and brokenness in our world humans are held responsible but at the same time he goes on to say this in verse five and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here listen to this for god sent me before you to preserve your life for the famine has been in the land for these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. The other side of the railroad tracks is God's sovereignty. Why is Joseph suffering the way he is? Yes, human responsibility. His brothers forsake him. The wife framed him. And the cupbearer forgot him. But what Joseph is saying is all of that was because of God's sovereignty. Now, I said that these are two answers that sound contradictory, and we want to go in our own perspective and go, it's either or. It's either humans are responsible or God's responsible and his sovereignty. But the truth is, it's not an either or answer. It's a both and answer. It's like two two tracks riding close together, parallel together, and God's creation is like the train who is set perfectly on each track running together. That is not to diminish human responsibility to say that God is sovereign, but it's simply to say that God is in control. Acts 2.23 says it this way. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon we see in Acts And he is preaching and thousands of people surrender their life to Jesus. And he is talking to the religious leaders, literally, that crucified Jesus. And here is his statement. That Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Sovereignty of God. But you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Human responsibility. 
When we look at the suffering that is going on in Joseph's life, he recognized that, yes, his brother sinned. Yes, this wife sinned. Yes, the cupbearer forgot him and just treated him and forsook and didn't care of what he did for him. He just, he just made it no big deal. That, yes, these humans are responsible. But here's the incredible truth for us tonight as we think about this, that God is still in control. That God is sovereign over all that is going on. And I know that begs the question, but hold on. How is it human responsibility and God's sovereignty? And the answer is, is those two things go in tension together. And I promise you, I struggle with that question too. But here's what I know, that from our perspective, it doesn't fully make sense. But from God's perspective and his love and his grace, he is sovereignly working these incredible things all for the good of his people, of those who love him. I want to illustrate it this way. Um, It was the summer... It was the summer before my seventh grade year. I was in middle school. My family, we just moved from rural Tennessee where I grew up and lived on a farm. We moved back into the city, and we moved into a new house. We'd been in the house a couple weeks. It was summer break. We just got out of school. We had moved into a house with a pool in the backyard. I'd never had that before. That's incredible in the south. There isn't much else to do in the heat during the summer except getting a pool, and so I was so grateful I had a pool. Well, also played baseball, and I remember the date. It's etched in my mind on June 3rd. I don't remember the year, but on June 3rd, I had a baseball game. I, I ended up on first. I don't really know how. I was batting. I ended up on first, and, and I get the signal from my coach to steal second base. And so as soon as the pitch goes, I'm off, and I'm running. I recognize, because I've never been all that fast, I recognize that the ball, um, the catcher throws it to the shortstop who's waiting at second base, and the ball comes, and the tag is coming right before I get there. I'm going to be out. And so I make a, I, I, I change sports all of a sudden. Now I'm hopping, try to hop over the shortstop who's ready to lay the tag. And in the process, I get twisted up, a crash comes down, and I break my foot. And I just remember in this moment as a middle schooler, my life came to an end, right, in that moment. Like, I just got a pool. Like, what do you, and now I got a cast, and now I can't swim in this pool. Now I can't play baseball. It's summer. For me, I know I'm dramatic middle schooler in that moment, but I'm just like, my life is over, right? And I remember spending all summer just mad at God. And here's particularly the reason why I played competitive baseball, and my baseball team that year made it. We were went, going to Kentucky to play in a, a World Series tournament, not the, the World Series, but it would have been a step up to the Little League World Series. And for whatever reason, because of my broken foot two months later, I couldn't go. And I just remember being mad. Because one, I couldn't play, I couldn't go. And so just like a good Christian family that I grew up in, my mom said, well, since you can't play baseball, I signed you up for church camp. I wasn't happy about that. I'd rather play baseball. So I go to church camp reluctantly, still in a walking cast. Um, and so it was, you know, there wasn't much I could do. I couldn't do the activities. I couldn't do all the fun stuff we were doing. So I was just hanging out, right? But here's what I want to tell you. It was at that weekend that the Lord called me to full-time ministry. And I knew in that moment that if it was up to me, I would have not chose this. If it was up to me, I'd be playing baseball. If it was up to me, I would not be at church camp. But God in his love recognizing that my heart was not choosing him first as a middle schooler. And he orchestrated in my life to put me in a place where he would radically change my life. And I look back on that moment, and that's just a simple example where I look back on that moment, because there's a few times where we get to look back and see how God uses our suffering. But what Joseph is saying 22 years later, and I imagine while he threw his brothers in prison for the first time for those three days, and he's wrestling with this, God works in his life to help him see after 22 years of suffering, it was all for this purpose. And that's what he says. So here's what we got to understand. Why is suffering taking place in my life? Sometimes I can't give you that exact answer. It's another question as a pastor I get. Not first just is where is God in my suffering, but why is this happening? And I can't always give the exact answer, but I can tell you this. It's your suffering is not happening because God doesn't love you. In fact, God loves you so much that he stepped in and suffered with us. One of the things our heart tends to do when we face suffering is want to blame God and go, God, if it was up to you and you really are sovereign, then this suffering wouldn't take place. But that's not true because suffering has to do with our sin and our rebellion. And God in his love comes and meets us right in the middle of our suffering. And we also can have hope because he is sovereign over our suffering. 
You and I may not have the privilege to see what I saw about just that summer or to see what Joseph saw 22 years later. You and I might not get to see why the suffering specifically is happening in your life. But here's what you can know with confidence, that even though humans are responsible for your suffering, absolutely, it might even be you that's responsible for your suffering, that God is in control. And in this sense, you can't mess up your life. Have you thought about that? I mean, from my perspective, I can mess up my life. But from God's perspective, I can't mess up my life. Look at, look at Joseph's father, Jacob. I'm going to do this quickly. I'm getting off script, which usually means longer sermons. So let me, let me go fast with this real fast. But look at the story of his father. We didn't talk about this much last week. But look at Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver, right? He, he immediately comes out fighting with his brother. He then deceives to steal the birthright of his brother, which the birthright meant essentially that his older brother would get two-thirds of all the inheritance, and he would only get one-third. So for him, he's doubling his inheritance with this deception. So he deceives his brother to steal the birthright. Then he deceives his father with the help of his mother. He deceives his father to get his blessing. We're going to talk about in a few weeks the importance of the blessing of God, but we'll look at Scripture in the Old Testament that God's blessing is the most coveted thing in all of Scripture. And so Jacob deceives to get it. Because he deceived to get it, he has to run away. Once again, family feud. Are we seeing a trend within God's covenant people? Family feud, right? So family feud, he now has to run away from his brother. He goes to a foreign land. He finds this woman he loves. And guess what? He gets deceived by his father-in-law. He gets tricked and marries the wrong woman. It's kind of like, you know, karma. I don't believe in karma. I want to be clear. I'm using that as a cultural joke. We don't believe in karma. But it is that idea where sometimes we might say, well, see, you got what you deserve. But I want you to get this. Rachel was exactly who Joseph was supposed to meet. Or excuse me, who Jacob was supposed to meet. There's a lot of J's here. Jacob was supposed to meet Rachel so that he could have Joseph, so that Joseph could go into slavery for 22 years so that he could save God's covenant people. Jacob, Jacob messed up his life in one sense, but in the other sense, he didn't mess it up at all. That God was still sovereignly working in his ridiculousness and all his mistakes and all his sin to bring about his covenant purpose. We can be encouraged that God is sovereign. We can have hope, therefore, that God, we can trust him in our things. Last question, what is the purpose of Joseph's suffering? What is the purpose of Joseph's suffering? Two answers to that. First is that God's doing a work in Joseph in his suffering. You hear me quote this all the time, but James 1-2, one, one, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its complete effect, so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. An author and a spy in World War II who eventually became a Christian said this at the end of his life, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experience that are that at times seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. He's saying, he's 75 years old, and he says, I look back on my life on things that I thought were very painful, and now I look on them with satisfaction. He says, indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. It's, it's actually he, this... This author says it's through affliction that, that he saw the most lessons learned. And how do we see God working in Joseph? I want us just to quickly look at for who, where he began and where he ended. He began as an arrogant brother who flaunted his chosenness. Now, Joseph had a dream. And because he was the favored son of his father, Joseph knew he was special. Joseph knew that God had chosen him for something. And he was arrogant about it. He was a 17-year-old telling his older brothers how awesome he was. He went from an arrogant older brother that his brothers then sold into slavery. And he ended up, listen to this, he ended up as a humble ruler who honored God in his chosenness. At 17 years old, God gave him a dream and made him special. And he was arrogant and, and ta- flaunted it in front of his brothers. But years later, at the age of 39, he became a humbled ruler who recognized that God was in control of all things. And he glorified God in his chosenness. Suffering was brought into Joseph's life to mature him. Second, suffering was brought into Joseph's life because God is doing a work through Joseph's life. 
What happens? Read with me in verse 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20, and we're almost done. Genesis 50, verse 20. Beginning in verse 19, let me tell you quickly how the Genesis ends and how the story ends. Is that their brother, or excuse me, their father, Jacob, eventually dies. And all the brothers now think that Joseph was just being nice to them because Jacob was alive. Their father was alive. But now that the father's dead, the brothers fear that now Joseph is going to get revenge. And so they come to him and essentially beg for mercy. And in verse 19, Joseph responds to them and says this, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We can see that Joseph suffered so that other people might be saved. Have you ever considered that maybe your suffering isn't about you? Think about the cupbearer. The cupbearer got an argument with Pharaoh and was thrown into prison all for the purpose so that he could meet Joseph and one day Joseph could rise to power. The cupbearer's suffering wasn't about the cupbearer. It was about Joseph. What about Jacob, his father? Have you ever considered Jacob's suffering of 22 years thinking you had lost your favored son? For 22 years, he thought he had lost his favorite son. To Jacob, what seemed like suffering was actually God working salvation for his family. See, looking back, Jacob can see that what seemed like a loss was actually God's sovereign plan to bring about salvation. You and I often in the middle of it, because suffering blurs our perspective, often just see suffering as loss. But when we see the story of Joseph, we see that suffering is in God's sovereignty is him working out salvation for other people. Maybe the suffering you're facing isn't about you. Maybe it's because God wants to use you to work in someone else's life. I had a conversation with someone in our church today before service. And they're about to walk in to a situation that um, reminisces suffering from 15 years before. Praise the Lord, God has brought victory from that suffering. But they're about to walk into a situation and then meet with someone that reminded them and brought about what eventually would become suffering in this person's life. They didn't cause the suffering. They just pointed out the suffering. And this person said, I feel like God's calling me to this conversation for a few reasons. But one of the reasons we talked about was now you are, 15 years ago, you weren't a Christian. But through your suffering and through suffering since then, God has done an incredible work of salvation in your life. And you get to go back and meet with this person who knows your suffering well. And you get to go back and talk about how good God is amidst your suffering. I said, maybe your suffering and some of this is an opportunity for you in this moment to glorify God by talking about your suffering with this person. To give another illustration that often happens in a perspective, and this is just going to just give a random example here. But maybe the diagnosis you just got isn't about you, but maybe it's about the unbelieving doctor or the unbelieving family member or the unbelieving neighbor, but that maybe God is allowing in his sovereignty suffering in your life so that you could be a witness and faithful witness. And we got to get this. This sounds very cliche Christian talk, but we got to see this from Joseph's story, that Joseph recognized that all that he went through was not about him. But it was about him being used by God to bring the salvation of many, many people. Closing illustration, one of the, the godliest men I've ever met, since some of you have had the privilege of meeting him, is a man by the name of Caesar in Guatemala. I've talked about Caesar before, but Caesar is one of the godliest men I know. He's been bedridden for 15 plus years of his life. He, as a, as a young adult, came to know Christ and was on fire for Christ. And God saved him out of some, some sin and brokenness. And, and God saved him. And he used to go from door to door around his community sharing the gospel. And he said he would constantly go and tell people about Jesus. And God, uh, and, and nobody was really listening. And nobody, he just felt like it was all in vain. And then one day he was diagnosed with a, a, an illness that is eventually going to take his life, where now he's bedridden because his, all his bones are beginning to fuse together and he's not able to bend. 
He has very little movement. He has movement in one hand and a little bit in his neck where he's able to talk and eat. Besides that, he's unable to move without great pain. There have been many moments where he has gone blind. There have been many moments where he has lost sight, been able to eat for over 30 days. There have been many moments where I've been on the phone with some friends that live in that town and told me that, hey, you need to pray for Caesar. He's likely, his life's going to pass. But I need you to tell you why he's one of the most godly men and what he would say when we were there this past year having a conversation with him. And I've known him now for about eight years. And in those eight years, I, I just like to ask him questions. And I'll, one of the things I ask him is, well, what is God teaching you? What is God teaching you? What is God teaching you? And here's what he said to me. He said, Jonathan, I've really come to learn something. He said, before I was sick, I couldn't get anybody to listen to me about Jesus. But because of my sickness, I've had the ability to to not even leave my house, but people from all over the globe come and visit me. And now I have a captive audience. He said this to me, he said, Jonathan, I really believe God allowed me to go through this pain and suffering so that he could be glorified in all nations. You got to know about something about Caesar. Caesar literally preaches the gospel to many, many nations. There are churches all over the globe who ask Caesar to record a sermon so that he can preach it back to his people. And you got to know that when I look at Caesar's life, one of the godliest men I know He says, God has allowed me to suffer in this way so that other people may come to saving faith in Jesus. And you've got to understand something, that God is ultimately about his glory and that God is loving and good. And listen to this. This is the story of Genesis in Genesis 50, verse 19. But we're only supposed to read in verse 20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you see how this is the story of Genesis? From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, our sin meant evil upon God's creation. But God is lovingly through all things and sovereignly through all things redeeming and making all things good. Therefore, because God is with us, we can rest in him. Because God is sovereign, we can place our hope in him. Because God has a purpose, we can find our meaning in him. And as we look at the story of Joseph, we can look at the person of Jesus because Jesus was the favored son who was forsaken by mankind. He was framed and crucified by his own people. And then Romans 3.11 says that he is forgotten by all mankind, but yet he is the forgiving ruler. When we look at the story of Jesus, we can see that Joseph was pointing to Jesus the entire time. That Joseph was the favored one. That Jesus was the favored one who was forsaken, who was framed and crucified, who was forgotten by all mankind. Romans says that we have turned away from him. No one seeks after him. It's as if he doesn't exist. But he came and stepped into suffering so that he could be the forgiving ruler. And in the same way that Joseph looks and sees, hey, all this suffering that was brought upon me was God doing it to save you. Jesus, when he was on the cross, as he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because Jesus understood that they were putting suffering upon him, but actually God was sovereignly working in it to actually save the very people that crucified him. The brothers crucified and forsook Joseph and Joseph saved them. In the same way, our sin put Jesus on the cross, but yet he forgives us. Do you know Jesus today? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you and we thank you. And God, as we turn to you and we trust in the difficult things of suffering, would we recognize that suffering does not mean you don't exist, but it actually means that you're with us amidst suffering. It's not to mean you are to blame for suffering, but it does mean you are sovereign and in control no matter how bad our circumstance gets. And we can be reminded and we can look to you as the forgiving ruler who took on suffering yourself so that you could forgive the very ones who crucified you. The scripture says all our sins ultimately put Jesus on the cross. So therefore you are our forgiving ruler also. So church family, I turn to you for a second. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Have you ever called upon Jesus to be your forgiving ruler? You may somewhat be in the moment where Joseph and his brothers, you may have come face to face in this moment with the reality that you have sinned against a mighty ruler, the king of the universe. And like the brothers, they in fear 
recognize what that means and how that can be negative for them. And without the forgiveness of the ruler, that means condemnation for them. So you may be like the brothers who are looking at Jesus and going, Jesus, please forgive me. Would you recognize your sin put Jesus on the cross? And that because He is King, you deserve condemnation from Him as for those sins. Yet, He is the forgiving ruler. Would you today call upon Him for salvation? Would you say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That if you'll call upon him, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and declare you righteous, meaning forgiven, not condemned. So Jesus, we turn back to you in prayer. And we pray over this room. Would salvation come to this room today? It would be those who call upon you in salvation for the first time. They go, Jesus, forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. As they surrender to you. Would you save? Would you forgive? I just want to take a minute, church family, and recognize that many of you in this room are in a place of suffering where you have yet to reach the end of the story, so to speak. And you go, you know what? I feel like I'm the forsaken brother. I feel like my family has cut me off. feel lost. Maybe you feel like you're in the prison within your suffering. Whatever illustration comes to mind, you just go, I'm just right in the middle of my suffering. And I just need encouragement. Would you be so bold and willing in this moment to allow us to pray for you by simply just standing? I'm not going to ask you to say anything, but if you just go, you know what, I I just need prayer. I feel like I'm in suffering, and I need the support of the brothers and sisters around me. I need support of my church family. Would you just right now, would you be willing to stand? We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.